All right, what's up, everybody? It's Nolan. What's up, what's up? It's Trevin. Yep, this podcast is called Better in Your Brain. So, uh, Trevin, what book did you read? Uh, so, I read The Andromeda Strain. Who's it by? Michael Crane. He also uh, wrote the Jurassic Park books. Oh, cool. Uh, what genre is it from? It's kind of like a, it's a sci-fi. It's a book. Interesting. How many pages? 285. Exactly. And where did you get this book from? Who told you about it? Well, I borrowed it at the library. Uh, so funny story. So I went to the library. I walked in. I told the library lady. I said, hello, excuse me, miss. Can you please point me to a book that someone of my reading level can comprehend? Then that's not too long. Also has a good plot and good enough like length to for me to grasp onto things and so she this was the first book she picked out she walked me right over to the uh, fiction section of the library and she just she asked if i read anything about michael read any of michael Crichton's uh, books and i told her told her no and so she said i think this is the book for you I skimmed through it a little bit and seemed like I could understand some most of the words, so I just went with it, and I'm glad that I did read it, because I haven't read a good book like this. The book that I've been interested in, um, like, it kept me entertained uh, in a long time. And what point of view does he write this book from? Uh, this is the third person, uh, like someone narrating. Ah, see, I see. The whole story. So tell me about it. What's the like story behind this book? Okay, so um, my book, in my book, uh, the setting is like it's in the U.S. and uh, it's about this project. They uh, send orbit, they send satellites to orbit uh, space, and supposedly it's supposed to be for uh, sanitation purposes and uh, bacteria. Uh, practicing to sanitize their uh, probes when they come down, but in actuality, uh, you can kind of infer that, uh, or he, he says it, but like you can already kind of tell when he, the when the narrator uh, starts talking about it, you can kind of already infer that uh, before he says the uh, army. Uh, is trying to uh, develop a chemical uh, used uh, for warfare, but so uh, back to the uh, satellite. So they send it up. It's called Scoop. Um, Scoop Seven. They send it up to uh, space. It's supposed to orbit for like a week, and then uh, end up getting hit by a. A meteor, so it came back down and uh, it landed in Arizona. Wow. So the mission control was in Nevada, which is ironic as well. Right. In Nevada. So uh, it landed in a rural town that not really, it wasn't highly populated, but it was, it was kind of a lot of people. And, um, so they went to go retrieve. Uh, the military sent uh, soldiers to go retrieve the uh, satellite, and then uh, they found a bunch of dead people, and so they radioed in, and uh, they, they called in the scientists. There was supposed to be five, but they ended up calling in the four scientists, uh, John Stone, uh, Mark Fall, Peter Levitt, and Peter Burton. They're... Uh, the fifth one, he ended up having a, some medical issues, so he couldn't come. And uh, so they basically, uh, so Jeremy Stone and Peter Burton end up, so they're the first two to be, they're called in a specific order. Uh, so Jeremy Stone and Peter Burton are the first two to uh, go and retrieve the satellite. And then. So they, they have to like fully suit up and everything in their their suits. 
to go and uh, look at it. The one thing they notice is that uh, everyone's dead, but it looks like they died peacefully. There's no blood. And later, when they find the orbit, or the, the satellite, they find the satellite in the, uh, the darkest house of the town or village. Town. <laughs> I said village. <laughs> oh. And so it seems like uh, the townspeople went and brought these satellite to the doctor and so they ended up doing an autopsy on the doctor they it was actually really gross they like it was very vivid and gruesome they uh-huh. talked about cutting off the parts of the thigh oh wow the neck. Yeah. usually when that happens it's supposed to bleed like in the movies but it didn't it was super trippy like uh, they cut it and then it was just like black like it just dark red blood like just dried up nothing happened uh, and it at first seemed like it made as they slowly made their way through the town after they recovered the satellite. Mm-hmm. It was kind of sad. They left the doctor. They didn't do anything. They just left him in pieces. I thought that was gross. Yeah, that's kind of disgusting. Disgusting. And then, so, so they find and they find two survivors. Yeah, an old man and a little baby. And they're barely alive. So they uh, take them back to the battle. Uh, and then, so they radio in for like the whole town to be like gas, just eliminate everything. Right. So they run autopsies on the. Uh, they run autopsies uh, at the uh, mission control. And Different levels where they do different things, yeah. uh, and so they just find out that it's just crazy bacteria. That's about it. Nice. Don't spoil it anymore. Sounds like a pretty. Sounds pretty gory. Yeah. That one bit. part. That one part kind of got me. All the cutting. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of weird. It is. And then there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. I just had it in my mind. Uh, uh, I'll come back to it, yeah. Any good quotes stand out to you? Anything that you can remember vividly? Yeah, for me, um, in the, so, uh, like I said, uh, the narrator or author, he does, uh, state that uh, actually no so it ha- the book has a theme of uh, like it's against the military right so uh, and you can kind of tell uh, like within the first hundred pages of the book you'll figure out that uh, Mike Crichton his tone is against uh, like the military research and how powerful they are. Uh, and the quote that stuck out to me was uh, when Levitt gave him the file, Paul read the note and whistled. Don't you believe it? Levitt said, Just a scare. Scare? No, Levitt said. If the wrong man reads his file, he just disappears. And in this context, he's talking about their debriefing file. And it's just goes to show like how secretive the, the military is and uh, just it's all business. Like, these people are like they're just basically implying that like classified information is really classified. And uh, I just wonder what would happen in real life if they actually do that or they mm-hmm. just like send you to prison because nobody really knows. Exactly. Um what's the vocabulary from this book? Like was it hard to understand, or was it pretty easy? Was it straightforward? I would say it's uh, grammar was uh, it was a little different. The words were I could I could say all the words like it was probably like two words I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I should have like wrote them down, looked them up, but uh, I, I generally understood what he was trying to say. Right. And and I didn't get lost in uh, lost in the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, 
Atonement, atonement, I just could not understand. It took, I had to reread things. Understandable. I know exactly how you feel. Someone, you know, I feel like this book was like at my reading level. Right. I would have, I wish I would have read this book earlier. Mm-hmm. Someone could have recommended it to me because I don't do much reading. Right. And how would you describe the author's time? Can you repeat that? Say that again. How would you describe how would you describe the tone of the narrator? Um I would say uh kind of objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it basically portrays um the character of Mark Hall. Uh, portrays him as like a, a, a arrogant uh, uh-huh. just Carefree, kind of like Juror 12 in uh, 12 Angry Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, just nonchalant, not really uh, focused on it. But the, the whole point of the. There's supposed to be five uh, scientists, but because the fourth one didn't show up, uh, it just screwed everything up. But. Uh, they chose, so Peter Levitt, Peter Bird, and Jeremy Stone, those three scientists, they're married, they have families. Uh, Mark Hall is just uh, a surgeon. And uh, so they basically chose him because of this thing called the odd man uh, rule. And because if, say, the lab gets contaminated, it's a fall to self-destruct, whether it's a self-destruct or not, because the married uh, man with children would probably want to go back to their families. Mm-hmm. So when they should self-destruct, uh, the base, um, it happens, uh, then they'll, uh, then, more, then uh, Dr. Hall, uh, he has the key to you know, decide whether it's, it's right or not. Um, but he portrays him as a arrogant uh, person. And I'd say his tone is uh, kind of casual, but at the same time, it's so I can obvious te- I can obviously tell you like this book. This was a book you enjoyed. Would you recommend this book to other people? Well, most definitely. Uh, probably someone who doesn't like reading at all. Right. I would recommend this book to them because I don't like reading. Mm-hmm. This is probably one of the very few books uh, besides. Probably the Hunger Games, Diary of a Kid. Yeah. I enjoy. Childhood favorite. All right, before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to say to the author of the book? Well, I'd just like to thank you. And uh, I'm going to read definitely when I get the chance to. I'm not reading the other reads. I'll read uh, some more of his, uh, his work. That's about it. Yeah. Big time. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back. Hi, Miss McGinnis. Uh, this is Trevi. It's Nolan. And uh, so this is our podcast. Uh, Nolan, what's the name of your book? So the book I read was How to Get Your Point Across in 30 Seconds or Less. Okay. Uh, who's your author? Who's the author of your book? Milo O. Frank. He also wrote a book called How to Run a Successful Meeting in Half the Time. So he's really, like, about communications. Okay. How many? What's, what is the genre the genre is like self-help, uh, communications, basically like public speaking. I can kind of tell mm-hmm. the title. Yeah. And plus the book looks like a, like Tactics for Dummies, Math for Dummies. Uh-huh. Kind of yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those categories. Yeah. So how many pages is it? It's really short, actually. It's 120 pages. I didn't know it was going to be this short. But it didn't make ten, it didn't make sense to me originally, so I actually read it like twice. So well, that's great. basically, it's like two hundred pages, pretty much. So how did you find out about it? So when I was younger, my dad read this book because he actually owns his own business, and he said when he first got into business, one of his like mentors told him to read this book, and he said it would help him go a long way, like in business. So he like read this and. 
he said it like taught him a lot of things. And when I was younger, I thought it was stupid. I was like, I'm not going to read a book about getting your point across. But then I like started, I got to high school and I realized I had issues with public speaking. And he still told me to read it, but I never did read it. And I was like, I might as well read it now. I need something to read. And I actually really enjoyed it. I'm glad I read it. Okay. Well, I would have never known you had problems with public speaking, but um, so uh, what's the point of view uh, it's written from? It's mostly written in second person. Uh, he's kind of talking to you. It's like an immediate conversation, basically. Okay. Kind of like right now? Exactly. Uh, so, uh, can you explain the story of the plot? So, basically, like, in the book, he's kind of like, every chapter is like a breakdown of a certain, like, point that you should touch when you're trying to get your point across in 30 seconds or less. There's a... Uh, hold on one second. Did I just really say plot? <laughs> 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 it's fine. All right. So there's 12 chapters. There's 12 different steps. Well, there's 11 steps. The last, the last chapter is about basically putting them all together. And the first time I read this book, I was really like dumbfounded because it kind of it made everything seem so simple. And I thought it didn't make sense because it was like, it's not this easy in real life. But then I read it around a second time, and I started to really pay attention. Then I realized he gets into, like, the deeper meaning of each one. And he shows you how easy it actually is. And I think that's why I really like this book, because he, like, he's kind of revealing to you that it's not as hard as you think it is. Because everybody, public speaking and, like, talking to people, people make more of it than it actually is. You really just have to be yourself and prepare. If you prepare for things, I think it's, he talks about how preparing for things makes you a lot better in life, just in general, but especially when it comes to public speaking. Like, if you have, if you know what you want to say before you get there, it'll go, it'll take you a long way. And I just, I think it's a really good book for everybody, even if you think you're personally good with handling people, if you think you're horrible at it, if you think you never can do it, if you have, like, anxiety, I think it works for anybody because, like, it's deep. It's deeper than it seems. And, it's, and it teaches you so many, like, steps and options to getting your point across in such a short period of time that you can take whichever one you want. And you don't have to use all of them. You don't have to use any of them if you don't. If you, if you have your own purpose or way to get your point across, then you can still do it. That's what he says in the book. But I like the fact that Frank gets into the idea, gets into so many different ideas of how you can do it and catch somebody's attention. Yeah, so that's basically my entire plot. Uh, so I just have a question for you. Uh, have you incorporated any of these yet? Definitely. Uh, first off, I think I chapter six is about your subject, and it's about, like, posture, body language, energy, like, gestures and stuff. And I used to talk, like, really bland and sound like I didn't enjoy what I was talking about all the time. I think I've really changed that. I think I've really, like, improved on that. And then I've also, like, I've worked on the Who's Listening chapter, which was chapter three. And it's, like, talking about knowing your audience before you go to talk to them. Like, you got to know who you're about to go talk to because everybody, catching everybody's attention is different because everybody's attention goes to different things. And, you know, so you have to know if you have someone with the shortest attention span, someone that's really attentive and you don't have to work as hard. So I think I, I, think I really learned a lot from those two chapters. Oh, that's cool. Uh, uh, this one you said, uh, knowing your audience, made me think of, uh, I'm not very uh, smart about politics, but uh, I do watch the news from time to time. Right. And uh, Trump went, had a rally, and uh, I forgot where it was, but uh, obviously it was in a more uh, conservative Republican area. Right. And so it went very well. I feel like if you went somewhere... Like Washington, it's a liberal country. Like exactly. State. Okay. <laughs> it's a liberal country. A state, liberal state. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't work out. It's to think about. Exactly. It's all about who you surround yourself with, and it's all about who, if knowing who you're speaking in front of. Because realistically, when you go to speak to somebody about something they don't care about, they're not going to listen. It doesn't matter how you present it. So, yeah, that's really one of the big things I learned. All right. Um, so, uh, uh, could you uh, share with me some quotes? Yeah. So, 
One quote that really, really stood out to me was, a truly effective 30-second message is more than a hook, a few words, and a close. Those words should paint a picture your listener will remember. And I like that because, I mean, it means a lot. When you think about it, like the quotes that you remember and the quotes that just stick in your head, a lot of times people say things to you, but they don't have any like basis behind it. And it's just like, uh, whatever, I hear you, but I don't care. But if you say something that's going to stick with that person that you know is going to stick with that person, they'll never forget and they'll always remember you. My dad always tells me that when I go introduce something, introduce myself to somebody, that I should always try to say something that's going to leave my mark on them in a good way to where they won't forget who I am next time they see me. Uh, one more quote that I got was, it can, be value, it can be more valuable than three minutes, 30 minutes, or three hours. 30 seconds can change the direction of your career and your life. And that was really cool to me because that actually, that's, that's super deep. And like, it means a lot. Like 30 seconds, you can get your point across, let them know what you want. And I don't think that just applies to like getting a message across. That applies to life. Life changes so quickly. Like it takes 30 seconds to get in an accident and, and die. Or it takes 30 seconds for just in general. 30 seconds can change the entire course of your life. And I don't think people value time perfect, like the right way. And that's that really made me think about value, valuing my time. Uh, I'm actually kind of curious. Uh, did, uh, did anywhere in the book talk about body language? Yeah, it definitely talked about body language. And chapter nine, the spotlight is on you. It talks about posture, acting like you want to be there even if you don't. And it gives you like tips on how to want to be there even when you don't want to be there. Because a lot of times, like for example, oral presentations in this class, <laughs> most of us never want to do them. But it talks about finding things that you like to talk about in the midst of the things you don't want to do. Because if you can find the things you want to talk about in the midst of things that you don't want to do, it makes those things easier. So body language, it's, it's easy to improve on, but at the same time, it's hard because you just have to convince yourself that you want to be there. Yeah, I kind of have a problem with just standing there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like being enthusiastic, but I gotta say the first two uh, podcasts I listened to, boy, I hated them. So, uh, I don't know if you remember Nolan, the third. I the most recent podcast mm-hmm. to the Soul Sisters Radio. Yeah, I remember that. Like, I know it's for ladies, but uh, it just hit me. I was angry. I just started incorporating this into my daily life. Like when I get home, practice, like, and I probably stress too when you come home. Exactly. And that's what it's really about. It's about finding stuff that you like in the midst of the things you don't like. Because if you can find that positive, it makes everything that much easier. And so uh, how would you describe um, your author's tone? The author's tone was definitely like, at first it threw me off because I didn't like the fact that he made it seem like it was so easy to get your point across in 30 seconds or less because I have such a hard time with that. I'll start to ramble on and on about things that don't matter. Maybe he needs to work on getting his point across. Exactly. But at the same time, the book is only 120 pages and that kind of caught me off guard. And then when I read it the second time around, I realized it's like, his point was really just like informative. He was like, I'm going to get straight to the point. Objective. Objective. It's super objective. It's like, I'm going to get straight to my point. I'm going to let you know how to do this. How you take it is how you take it but I'm going to give you a good point. And he gave you a good point in 120 pages that a book that's 300 pages probably couldn't give you. So I liked it. Would you say he used his words in a certain way? I, def- I definitely say it's like an easier vocabulary. Like he used, he used big words. He used like words that you, he used a, a deeper vocabulary sometimes, but most of the time it was like, I'm going to get my point across. So I'm going to use as little words as possible. And I'm going to, occasionally have to put in a deeper vocabulary, but mostly it's about getting my point across. So it's not about the big words, because if you're saying words that people won't understand, they're not going to pay attention. Um, Just like I enjoyed mine, it seems like you enjoyed your book. Um, Yeah. Would you recommend this book to I definitely recommend that other people read this, and it's, I don't think it goes to a specific demographic. I think kids in high school could use it. I think younger kids could use it. I think adults could use it, because I think this is a problem that, like, doesn't have an age to it. I think everybody has this problem. And uh, if you could say one thing to the book, what would it be? 
definitely thank you because I learned a lot reading this book. This book definitely taught me a lot. All right, well, that's our uh, podcast of the day. All right, see ya. This is Don. This is Nolan. All right, we're uh, here to talk about Atonement, chapters 5 through 9. I'll start it off. So, in chapter 5, Bryony quits her play because she was frustrated. Do you think there was an ego problem when it came to the play? Why? Her part, and I think that just kind of affected her to the rest of the play. That's a good point. And I kind of think, like, the whole purpose of her doing the play is because she thought she would be in control of everything and she could, like, be the star because she wrote the play and she could, like, give out the parts. But Lola kind of, like, assigned herself a part that she didn't even want, but she took it just so she could be in control. Kind of made her mad. And then the fact that the twins didn't want to do it at all. And I kind of just, like, threw her off. That's a good point. All right, so uh, second question is, could, could Bryony have made the play more enjoyable for herself if she was nicer to the actors? And would the play still be going on? Um, I don't think so, because I think, again, she was all about control. And even if she was nice, like, if they still didn't listen to her and she was nice, it still would have been um, and then I think a big part of the problem was the play was bad, so like, oh, yeah. they didn't want to be there because the play was bad in itself, but, yeah, her being nicer, if she was being nicer, that means Lola probably would have just walked over the entire time, and she's kind of in control freak too. Do you, you guys remember how uh, she wanted her brother to really like the play? Yeah. What do you think's going to happen now that the play's done? She won't really care about the play anymore because of what's happening with Cecilia and Robbie. I just feel like the play is just I feel like she might try to look for like something else to make her brother happy. Since like the play isn't gonna do it. Those are good points. Alright, uh chapter six. In chapter six, Emily Taos thinks about Bryony being withdrawn and how she wants another kid. Why, why would she want another kid when it seems like she sort of hates her kids and just rants about them? I don't think she hates her kids. She, like... Well, all she, she does is complain like about them. But, like, she's, like, really caring about Brian and wants to talk to her. And, like, she misses when Barney was a child so she could take care of her. So I think she just wants that feeling again. Wants to like give attention to something. Yeah, I think she. I think she kind of has the control freak trait that everybody in the family has, and then like part of it, I think it's that like she realizes like Leon is not ambitious. He doesn't do anything with his life, but he's like super nice. Bryony's really like controlling, and she doesn't know anything about the real world. And then she thinks Cecilia is like ruining her life because she smokes, and yeah. she is uneducated. Yeah. So, like, I think she, maybe she wants another kid because she has another chance and maybe she knows what to do now. Like, that could be part of it. Cool, cool, cool. All right, uh, the second one is Emily Tao seems to, or seems so uninvolved in her children's lives, so why do you think she rants so much about her kids? Like I'm saying, like, it seems like she doesn't even know what's going on with Cecilia, but she still hates her. Um, I think she can, like, hear all the conversations like throughout the chapter she was like describing what's happening because she could hear it all around her so i think that's how she knows like how they act and how they are so she's like snooping around sort of like the teachers at the school um i think part of that is like I think she's jealous because she doesn't have that relationship with her kids. That, like, like her, Bryony, she just, like, says yes to everything she does. But, like, Cecilia, they don't really have, like, a close relationship. It doesn't seem like it, at least. So, I mean, I think that might just be, like, partly her sad because she doesn't have a good relationship with her kids. 
That's all I got. Yeah, so in chapter seven, you have Bryony and she's like in the field slashing the nettles. She's like having a daydream pretty much about her being the best nettle slasher of all time because she's officially like giving up on plays. And she sees Leon passing by her and she like kind of ignores him because she's like so in the zone. And the questions I got from that were that in these chapters, or in chapter seven, Bryony slips out of her daydream of being the best nettle slasher in the world and she's kind of broken in a way. And is this her first taste of real life? And do you think it was this failure that made her realize everything doesn't go her way in life? Yeah, definitely. Because remember earlier in the chapters when she saw Robbie and Cecilia messing around and she thought that was like the first glimpse into adulthood? Yeah. Then this is like sort of her first glimpse into adulthood. Because she's like, oh, life sucks. She's got to deal with it. Yeah, she was like so sheltered as a kid that like she's just now realizing like the reality of things. Yeah, she's so entitled. Yeah. yeah. Um. Then my next question was, Rioni ignored Leon when he first approached her, as she was so focused on being the best flash slasher she could be. Do you think that she will end up being withdrawn from society due to the fact that she tends to ignore things and live in her own world? And is a habit like that hard to break? Or is a habit like that breakable? And if so, how do you break it? Um, I don't think she'll become detached from society, but like, I think she'll actually be more aware of what goes on around her and like really seeing things for how they are or how she thinks they are. Yeah, definitely for how she thinks, not for how they are. Because she's like, she's so full of herself, like, even. She's looking at her hand, and she's like, "Am I the only one with a conscience?" Yeah, like, oh. I'm like, "Oh my gosh! Like, how rich, how rich are my hands? Are worthy? Not realize any of that stuff." So that habit too is not going to be breakable for her, yeah. or maybe it will be. But the problem is, she's just too snobby and doesn't really want to change and doesn't take any credit for her own wrongdoing. I feel like the only way that habit could, like, break is if she gets, like, a completely different setting where she's, like, yeah. nobody and she has to, like, do everything for herself. Yeah. But at the same time, she might just, like, shut down if that happens. Like, Lonzo Ball, he goes to the Pelicans. Exactly. Changes scenery, but it may be bad or it may be great. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. In Chapter 8, Robbie is struggling with his feelings for Cecilia. Bobby reveals that the story about his parents' separation. Do you think this could be why he's so afraid of love with Cecilia? Do you think he's afraid to mess up like his father did and why? Wait, what did his father do again? His father, I think, cheated on him. Oh, yeah, and that's like Cecilia's dad's like paying for him or something that had to go to college. Can you just re say the first part of the question? Robert reveals the story about his parents' separation. Do you think this could be why he's so afraid to be in love with Cecilia? Do you think he's afraid to mess it up? Yeah, because he has, like, no confidence. Or he's, like, he's full of insecurity. You know, he doesn't want to go talk to her. He's, like, too nervous. And she sort of gets off a bad vibe to begin with. You know, so it's just tough. And then also the parents do not help at all. Yeah, like, you can tell he likes her, but he's just, like, scared, and she's kind of scary. Like, she's, like, she's super, like, confident in herself, and he's just, like, I don't really know what to do. And he ends up messing up, and then he feels really bad about messing up. And, yeah. The color yellow is highlighted a lot throughout this chapter. The color yellow symbolizes clarity and cowardice. How do you think these two traits relate to Robbie and why? Is this the one where he said that no? Yeah. All right, well, the yellow, the clarity is like, so he wanted to send the right note, right? But that wasn't like full of his true feelings. So he sent the nasty note by accident. So that yellow is like clarity in mind, sort of. And then the cowardly one is like, he's too afraid to tell Cecilia how he actually feels. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, he sends that note, or he writes that note, and he's just like, I can't ever show anyone that because that's kind of gross. But like, <laughs> then when he sends it to her, he basically has like a breakdown and doesn't even know what to say because, like, yeah, he just expressed his true feelings, which he should have 
the entire time. And it was ironic too because she like ended up liking him now and liking him even more. Exactly, she sees the dead. <laughs> 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 sick stuff. In chapter nine, Cecilia struggles with picking out what to wear. Finally, she decides on a green dress. The color green symbolizes renewal and growth. How do you think these relate to her feelings for Lobby? I think she like. Well, first, her like not being able to decide what dress she wanted to wear was like. She made it seem like she wasn't trying to impress Robbie, but she was, she really was. She was trying to look good for him. And that like that color green like letter, it felt like it was her breaking out of her little shell of like denying that she wants to be with Robbie. And it's just like, okay, I'm gonna put this on. I'm gonna be a new person, and I'm ready to try and make this work. <laughs> Because did she keep changing? Yeah. Yeah, that stinks for her. Because she didn't realize she wanted to impress him, right? Yeah. At the end of chapter nine, Brian hands the letter to Cecilia, but the seal is open. Do you think Brian read the letter? If yes, what do you think she'll do with that information? Do you think it'll drop Oh, definitely she read it. Because remember, Cecilia kept trying to ask her and she wouldn't respond. Yeah, she was like ignoring Yeah, there's no way. Like, if I was a little kid, I'd read that too, you know? She yeah, she definitely read that letter, and she's probably like mind blown because she has like no real understanding for what any of that means. And this is like this is a real taste of reality and adulthood. So she's probably like, and now she's probably thinking about like when uh, Cecilia dove in the waterfall for her piece of the pot. She's probably like it's probably all kind of making sense to her, but it's not at the same time because she doesn't get it really. Nolan. So, starting off with chapter 10. In chapter 10, Bryony states that order must be imposed. Why do you think she believes it's her responsibility to solve everything? Do you think she's really looking for justice for her sister, or is something else motivating her? I think most of it is just like she sees everything as like her stories or her plays. Like she just kind of, uh, she thinks it's going to like play out how she imagines it's in her mind, not how like reality takes, like how reality will be. So I think she's kind of just living in her own imagination right now, thinking that everything's going to be like perfect for her. I think she realizes that like since the play didn't go, this is like her opportunity to be the center of attention again. So she's like taking this chance to like put herself back in the spotlight. Um, yeah, like I think she's taking that like like Melissa that like chance like she wants to be older, like, she wants control of her life, she like wants some more responsibilities. And like that's allowing her to like seem older. That's what she like gets talked to by the police and stuff. Yeah, I don't think she like realizes that her actions in these chapters are gonna like play out in real life and actually have consequences for other people. And then she has um when she shows it to like Lola, Lola's saying like, yeah, we should show the police or we should bring it to police and Brian tells her like, no, that's, there's no reason to do. I can do it for myself and then it drags into like the next three chapters, you see like kind of like the consequence of that and how things kind of escalate from just being a letter. Bryony jumps to conclusions pretty fast. She believes Robbie is a maniac who's coming after her sister. Do you think her actions are because of her age? If she were older, do you think these events would still unfold? Would she still think Robbie is the maniac? I think it's more because she's like just childish still. Like she's been kind of like just like uh, she's always had her parents like like Emily Thomas she's always been with her the entire time like she's really supportive of her she's never she's just kind of lived like kind of like a pampered life like the worst thing that's happened to her was just that play not working out like that's kind of her definition of like a tragedy and then here she doesn't realize how serious things are because she's never really been experienced or like She's never lived that sort of life, so she doesn't really comprehend that, like, this is serious, this is threats, that, like, something's actually happening and that she can't really do anything about it.
Bryony jumps to conclusions pretty fast. She believes Robbie is a maniac who's coming after her sister. Do you think her actions are because of her age? If she were older, do you think these events would still unfold? Would she still think Robbie is the bad guy? I definitely think it's because of her age, because she, like, sees one thing, like, she saw the face break, and she, like, took it completely different than what it was, and then she saw the thing in the library, and I think if she were to be older, they actually would have, like, ended up talking things out instead of just leaving it at, like, nothing, because, like, she walks in and Cecilia just storms out, and, like, Robbie doesn't say anything to her, like, they, no one talks to her about, like, what's going on, so I feel like she's just taking it into her head, and, like, yeah, she's still kind of like trying to grow up, but she's growing up like on her own because no one really gives her like a taste of reality. So she's just like walking around making assumptions that are like completely wrong. Yeah. And I mean, her mom like doesn't really do anything with her. And her dad's never home. And then like, she's in college and her brother's home. It's really just her, so like she kind of has to make it for herself. I think a lot of it focuses on back like at the fountain scene when she's looking through the window. She's talking about like perspectives and how there's everyone's different perspective. But then it's kind of like ironic because it comes back to her and she only she doesn't think about the other people's perspectives like she did there. Here it's just what she sees is what it is. So I think that's like the major factor in some of it. Nolan. So starting off with chapter 10. In chapter 10, Bryony states that order must be imposed. Why do you think she believes it's her responsibility to solve everything? Do you think she's really looking for justice for her sister or is something else motivating her? I think most of it is just like she sees everything as like her stories or her plays. Like she just kind of, uh, she thinks it's going to like play out how she imagines it's in her mind, not how like reality takes, like how reality will be. So I think she's kind of just living in her own imagination right now, thinking that everything's going to be like perfect for her. I think she realizes that like since the play didn't go, this is like her opportunity to be the center of attention again. So she's like taking this chance to like put herself back in the spotlight. Yeah, like I think she's taking that like like no one said that like chance like she wants to be older, like she wants control of her life, and she like wants some more responsibilities. And like that's allowing her to like seem older. That's when she like gets talked to by the police and stuff. Yeah, I don't think she like realizes that her actions in these chapters are gonna like play out in real life and actually have consequences for other people. And then she has um when she shows it's like Lola, Lola's saying like, yeah, we should show the police or we should bring it to police and Brian talks about, no, that's, there's no reason to, I can do it for myself and then it drags into like the next three chapters, you see like kind of like the consequence of that and how things kind of escalate from just being a letter. Bryony jumps to conclusions pretty fast. She believes Robbie is a maniac who's coming after her sister. Do you think her actions are because of her age? If she were older, do you think these events would still unfold? Would she still think Robbie is the maniac? I think it's more because she's like just childish still. Like she's been kind of like just like uh, she's always had her parents like like Emily Thomas she's always been with her the entire time like she's really supportive of her she's never she's just kind of lived like kind of like a pampered life like the worst thing that's happened to her was just that play not working out like that's kind of her definition of like a tragedy and then here she doesn't realize how serious things are because she's never really been experienced or like she's never lived that sort of life so she doesn't really comprehend and that like this is serious, this is threats and that like something's actually happening and that she can't really do anything about it. Wait, was he Sorry. Bryony jumps to conclusions pretty fast. She believes Robbie is a maniac who's coming after her sister. Do you think her actions are because of her age? If she were older, do you think these events would still unfold? Would she still think Robbie is the bad guy? Um, 
I definitely think it's because of her age, because she, like, sees one thing, like, she saw the face break, and she, like, took it completely different than what it was, and then she saw the thing in the library, and I think if she were to be older, they actually would have, like, ended up talking things out instead of just leaving it at, like, nothing, because, like, she walks in and Cecilia just storms out, and, like, Robbie doesn't say anything to her, like, no one talks to her about, like, what's going on, so I feel like she's just taking it into her head, and, like, yeah, she's still kind of like trying to grow up, but she's growing up like on her own because no one really gives her like a taste of reality. So she's just like walking around making assumptions that are like completely wrong. Yeah. And I mean, her mom like doesn't really do anything with her. And her dad's never home. And then like, she's in college and her brother's home. It's really just her, so she kind of has to make it for herself. I think a lot of it focuses on back, like at the fountain scene when she's looking through the window. She's talking about like perspectives and how there's everyone's different perspective. But then it's kind of like ironic because it comes back to her and she only she doesn't think about the other people's perspectives like she did there. Here it's just what she sees is what it is. So I think that's like the major factor in some of it. Jake. No one. So chapter 11 is kind of focusing on the dinner party while a lot of them are eating and it's kind of focusing on like the awkward silence that's going on because everyone's kind of just wants to leave because they said it's like hot in there because the windows weren't open, the wine wasn't good and then no one wants to eat the uh, food there because it didn't look good. And uh, Paul ends up breaking the silence asking Robbie about his tennis match and Robbie sees there's a scratch on Paul's face. Does this, my first question has to do with that, it's that, um, <laughs> it's that, uh, Paul has a scratch on his face and that, is it possible that anyone else had noticed the scratch and is it connected to Lola's wrists and shoulders, how they were burned and scratched? Could this play a larger part in the story or is this scene solely to give the reader information as to what happened? I think, I don't think it has to do, like, I don't think it's really going to be brought up again. I think it just kind of give us readers, like, a more view of Paul and, like, I think he did attack them instead of the twins. So I think it just kind of give a more eerie vibe to Paul. Yeah, I think that was just like, that scratch just like got the reader's mind going, like it made you like this. It's just like the hand that's like, that's connected. Exactly, you see it and you just see Lola and she just had that moment. It's like he obviously did something. And then he like goes there to say like, he saw the whole thing happen and he broke up the fight. Like, why would he involve himself in the situation if he wasn't there? And then, like, why wouldn't he say anything? Yeah, he was the only one to bring up, like, the fight. Like, when they, like, when Emily asked him, like, how it happened, like, she can't even explain it herself. And he's the one to explain it for her. So that kind of shows. And then during the dinner, uh, Cecilia explains that, tells Robbie that Bryony's read a letter, and then Bryony ends up in the library while uh, Cecilia and Robbie are making love. And pretty much everyone just, like, it snaps at that point, everyone's angry at each other. And then my last question for that is, does the events that happened in this scene, like, foreshadow the future? And if so, what could it be foreshadowing? Well, I think, like, the fact that they were making love and she found them in the library, that could foreshadow that, like, the sex represents, like, everybody's perspectives colliding because everybody kind of has, like, a different perspective on everything in the household. So I feel like that might be, like, foreshadowing a lot of conflict coming soon. I think it foreshadows, like, the main issue that's going to be in the book is Bryony's point of view of the situation and her jumping to conclusions versus like Cecilia and Robbie's where it was just an act of love but um, Bryony thinks it was rape. And then also it's like Bryony when she snaps on Robbie like she she just like starts yelling at him during the dinner that's when him and Cecilia go off. I feel like that's kind of, uh, I feel like Bryony's just looking for something that isn't there, you know, like she's trying to find, uh, like she thinks it's a story, like she's trying to find like the issue with him or like find the reason to actually hate him.
and just like make him like the bad guy in their story. And Jake? No one. So chapter 11 is kind of focusing on the dinner party while a lot of them are eating. And it's kind of focusing on like the awkward silence that's going on because everyone's kind of just wants to leave because they said it's like hot in there because the windows weren't open, the wine wasn't good, and then no one wanted to eat the uh, food there because it didn't look good. And uh, Paul ends up breaking the silence asking Robbie about his tennis match and Robbie sees there's a scratch on Paul's face. Does this, my first question has to do with that, and it's that, um, <laughs> it's that uh, Paul has a scratch on his face and that, is it possible that any, anyone else had noticed the scratch and is it connected to Lola's wrists and shoulders, how they were burned and scratched? Could this play a larger part in the story or is this scene solely to give the reader information as to what happened? Um, I think, I don't think it has to do, like, I don't think it's really going to be brought up again. I think it just kind of give us readers like a more view of Paul and like I think he did attack them instead of the twins yeah. so I think just kind of give a more eerie vibe to Paul. Yeah, I think that was just like, that scratch just like got the reader's mind going, like it made you like this. It's just like the hint that's like, that's connected. Though. Exactly, you see it and you just see Lola and she just had that moment, it's like he obviously did something. And then he like goes there to say like, he saw the whole thing happen and he broke up the fight, like why would he involve himself in the situation if he wasn't there? And then like, why wouldn't he say anything? Yeah, he was the only one to bring like the fight. Like when they, like when Emily asked Lola like, how it happened, like she can't even explain it herself. And he's the one to explain it for her, so that kind of shows. And then during the dinner, uh, Cecilia explains that, tells Robbie that Bryony's read her letter, and then Bryony ends up in the library while uh, Cecilia and Robbie are making love. And pretty much everyone just, like, it snaps at that point. Everyone's angry at each other. And then my last question for that is, does the events that happened in the scene, like, foreshadow the future? And if so, what could it be foreshadowing? Well, I think, like, the fact that they were making love and she found them in the library, that could foreshadow that, like, the sex represents, like, everybody's perspectives colliding because everybody kind of has, like, a different perspective on everything in the household. So I feel like that might be, like, foreshadowing a lot of conflict coming soon. I think it foreshadows, like, the main issue that's going to be in the book is Bryony's point of view of the situation and her jumping to conclusions versus, like, Cecilia and Robbie's, where it was just an act of love, but um, Bryony thinks it was right. And then also, it's like Bryony, when she snaps on Robbie, like, she... She just like starts yelling at him during the dinner. That's when him and Cecilia go off. I feel like that's kind of. Uh, I feel like Bryony's just looking for something that isn't there, you know? Like she's trying to find. Uh, like she thinks it's a story. Like she's trying to find like the issue with him or like find the reason to actually hate him and just like make him like the bad guy in her story.